0: mostly um a like the like is it falls in there because
1: we try and compare things so frequently right. as english speakers that that that's what happens the like falls in there okay i will try to make a conscious effort this without making so much of a conscious effort that it hinders how i'm talking
0: yes we're not that professional
1: i keep f- thinking to myself like we need to do follow up because that makes a show more interesting but then I'm always like, I don't know. We don't have a Reddit or... We have the most rudimentary way ever to receive feedback.
0: Person, face-to-face.
1: Yeah. And then it's different than... Because internet feedback, they don't know you. They just... it's Their sole impression is what you've made. And so they just tell you what they think of what you've made. On that note, is there any follow-up? <laughs> Yes. Three people talked to me about the most
0: recent episode. Ooh, this is new. Yep. The guy in my class, he told me that he asks people all the time what they do all day. So he studies in STEM, and right, he asks people. He said, I mean, it's true what he said, that no matter what you study, you could always fill your day with stuff to do. You could always be busy, but whether or not you're actually doing schoolwork all day, yeah. or you're just doing productive things in some other aspect of your life it's just different i
1: don't know how much overlap there is here but i think probably reasonably independently of the kind of career interest someone has there are people that just have a habit of filling up their life with stuff Mm -hmm. to do that's usually like productive stuff and then there's the people that don't have this habit and there's probably you know in-betweens but i've realized that if i have free time i end up like filling it up with a regular thing that i do and then it fills up all my time again Yes. And if it's not school, then it will be like something to do with church or work or the gym. Just something. Something will fill all my time. Yeah. So usually it's not reading for me. I actually used to read English. We'll get to that later. I used to read a lot just for entertainment. I have a harder time finding books now, probably because of where my mind's at, and I don't have the time to look for books yeah, and I'm yeah. also picky about like the uh, risqueness of stuff I consume. Like I'm really picky. Yeah. So that just cuts out a whole bunch of stuff that otherwise I would probably find entertaining if it didn't have that.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, aside from that, we put noise in our. I put noise in our <laughs> in the last episode. Would you like to say what the follow up from the noise one? Yeah. So
0: some <laughs> thought that the noise in the middle was a bit unexpected and rather loud. Especially compared to our level of conversation, for the audio decibel level of us uh, okay. talking, and then you insert this
1: sound, which is electronic and beepy and such, and it was just unexpected and loud. Apparently, you know, I haven't, I had, hadn't noticed that, but probably because I knew it was coming. So I guess I could listen again and pay attention to like whether it's a lot louder than our voices. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I assume you didn't think it was because you know you put it in and listened. Yeah, but I also <laughs> expected it as well. Could we have some bias there then? I don't yes. know.
0: So I will make it a little quieter <laughs> if it ends up in here again. So, is that it for follow-up? Yeah. I mean, we could talk about other stuff that we've done recently, but it, nothing has been as exciting as the 4th of July in the past other week. so That's true. I think we should just get to it. Yeah. We've got plenty of stuff to talk we about do. anyway. So we're going to pick up kind of where we left off last time because we ran out of time. We would like to talk about university life, but specifically assessment. I mean, you could talk to so many people about this, but we specifically would like to discuss how universities,
1: how modern universities, determine the aptitude of its of their students. So, I'm sure I'll have a lot to say about this, but I'm going to let you take the lead since you were able to attend that colloquium that I really Wanted to attend but wasn't able to. Yes. Tell us, by the way. So, we had in the
0: physics department at BYU a professor from Harvard come, Dr. Mazur, and he spoke to us, and his address was assessment, the silent killer of learning. So, he had a thing on the Tuesday evening before where it was more of an open. Discussion, talking with Dr. Mazur and discussing basically the point that he came to in his life and why he's teaching at Harvard. He's also from Europe, though, he's from the Netherlands. Okay. So he grew up in the Netherlands and then he ended up going to Harvard
1: and he stayed at Harvard, did a postdoc at Harvard and just stayed at Harvard. Like a lot of really eminent scientists that we know, they just stay in the same university. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the earlier ones, a lot of the early physicists. I don't know if you remember this from modern physics, but when they did the little reports on them, sometimes they would switch from undergrad to graduate school at a different university. But then it was graduate school, and then PhD, and then they were a professor, and then they were the dean of something. Yeah, I noticed at the this is a school. fairly common thing. This has to do with what we're going to talk about later, so I just have to ask this question: How was Dr. Mazur's English? Ah, uh, you could tell he had an accent.
0: It was very difficult to tell that it was Dutch. Okay, you could, like tell he you, has could an you could tell it it wasn't an English accent, like British English or other variations of the English accent. Okay. And it was not based off of Spanish. You could also tell that. It seemed possible possible that it could have been French, but it didn't seem quite the same because his Rs and other key indicators on French speakers they weren't there. So German was a close guess. A few of the people around me guessed German. But then, then he told us that he was from the Netherlands and Dutch, German. They were kind of close, but it made sense.
1: The interesting thing about accents is if you start learning the other language too late, there can be no way to get rid of an accent completely because your muscles in the developmental stage weren't practicing making the sounds in the other language, so there's some sounds that you can't, you just can't make the same. Yeah. So, I guess what I'm more interested in is how was his grammar. His grammar was very good. Excellent. Yeah. I'm always so impressed with that. So, well done, Dr. Mazur. If you're listening, you're probably not. Okay, we can continue. I just had to know. So,
0: Dr. Mazur, he talked about these, um, the assessment of education. And he said that when he began his professorship, or like his assistant professor, when he first started teaching, he would lecture and then he would test people the same way that... Everyone does. Right. Some sort of a test, maybe some multiple choice and some fill in the blank or some short answer, because it was physics. He taught physics. And he noticed that first of all students complained. They complained saying, Why do we need to memorize these formulas? What is the point of doing this? Or why do we have to do it like this? And these are students at Harvard. Students at Harvard,
1: yes. Okay. So they're intelligent students. It's not like most of them probably don't have a hard time memorizing things. But as the world developed,
0: I don't remember exactly when he started teaching at Harvard, but as, things, as the world developed and there became computers with such good databases and, and going into the Internet age.
1: And pedagogy became more of a thing?
0: Yes, as well. He started changing the way he would uh, assess the students. But before the age of the Internet, he would give them a formula sheet. They would get a formula sheet and then they would go take their test. So they didn't need to memorize as much, but that's what they did. That's what he did. And then, as time progressed, they were still sort of curious, and basically, as time went on, his tests are now, you can use anything except Google and other people.
1: Okay. We've had tests like this.
0: Yeah. Basically, as long as you want to take the test, you have all the resources. I I think because some of these questions are introductory course questions... Very intro to mechanics with beginning calculus such. Okay. That you can't let them use Google because they're going to be able to find the answer using Google.
1: Right. Because, Not just like what the formula is, but this is the answer to this question.
0: Yeah, because those questions appear so frequently that people post those kinds of solutions Right to those kinds of questions. So his tests now are very open. He also discussed some of his experiences that led him to this. And one of the most interesting things that he did was he went to another university. And I believe he was being shown how this particular professor would test, would assess their students. Okay. And he goes to the classroom, and they were all sort of noisy and loud. And he thought for a moment that he went to the wrong room because he was supposed to be going to a classroom where where they were testing and they were being loud and talking and collaborating, and he thought he had gone to the wrong place. But the way they did it was, the first half of the test, they did alone. So they all had, I don't know, say ten questions or something, and they would answer these ten questions. And then So they would
1: go through the whole test by themselves
0: first? The entire test by themselves first. Okay. And then they would get in groups of four, and they would go through the entire test again, and they would submit group answers. It's kind of ridiculous how giddy I'm getting over this idea. <laughs> but they would, they would discuss these answers, and you would get points based on the correctness of doing it alone. But you also get points based on the correctness of your group. But you could discuss your ideas on why you thought that it was that answer. And then you would get points for how many... I'm trying to remember exactly how it was. I think everybody put their own answer down still, but now that they had discussed it with the group, maybe the answer changed. So out of four people, maybe three people would put A and one person would put B or something like that. Okay. And I think out of your group, depending on how many people put the same answer that is correct, you'd get so many points. I don't remember exactly. So there was some way to score this kind of thing. There was some way to score it, but the important thing was that they were collaborating. Because as anyone who's taking a test may notice, life
1: is not isolation. (laughs) Yes. I don't know how well this fits all disciplines. I can imagine it fitting well in a lot of them. But this works really well for physics, because this is how physics works in the real world. No one does research completely by themselves. And no one is, hopefully, arrogant enough to solve this problem and not, like, talk about it with someone else and think, like, is my math sound? And, like, talk through it and look at it, you know. No one does this. We don't do it alone. I think the greatest reason that we don't do it alone
0: in physics today is because, one, the low-hanging fruit is gone. Yeah. Well, well we can most, argue about that later. We, we <laughs> could argue about that later. But basically, somebody... A lot of it is gone, I agree. By gone, I mean the average person can't just create a laboratory in their garage and discover something new in physics. Yeah, most of that's been taken care of. I agree with that. And so the physics that is being discovered today is literally probing the edges of reality. And that is just too much for one person to do. No one person is clever enough to be able to do all of that. And if they are, they would be very obvious
1: in the world. Like, they would be very prominent. Right. So, anyway... Sorry. Sorry, Sidetrack. That is really great. Because it's also important to assess the individual. If this individual is not good and always gets it wrong, but the group always gets it right despite them, you don't want that person on their on your team because they're not going to be very helpful. And this person is not going to know or perhaps be motivated to do better. So I like that there's like some individual assessment and group assessment because the ultimate thing is like that the group gets the right answer, but the group will get the right answer better and more quickly and more thoroughly and more often if everyone in the group is good. On top
0: of it, if the student got the question wrong, and they come to a group, and the other three got it right, they would teach the student why it was right, and why they were wrong. And they're so much more willing to listen to their peers than they are to listen to somebody lecturing down at them, and someone also who just also understood it on their level.
1: Yeah, not someone who understands it like four levels up. And, and 30 years on, ago. Yeah, and it's depending on some math that you maybe don't know, and so they're having a hard time explaining the low-level math derivation. I agree. So that was a significant thing that, we, that I uh, had learned from
0: Dr. Mazur. The other very significant thing was just a simple experience that he had when he went shopping once, where he discussed how difficult it was to assess students on a creative level and not the base regurgitation level. Right. So he went shopping. There was this place where he circled around a couple times to see if there was an open place to park. Finding no place to park, he stopped in a location that was not illegal, but he could see, or as he said, command, about 20 stalls. And he sat there and thought for a minute, how long do I need to wait here before a stall opens? Now, if you ask that sort of question on a test, so you... You come to a test, and you read, you're trying to find a place to park. You don't find any places, but you situate yourself in a place where you can see 20 stalls. About how long will it take before you can park? That sort of a question would just create anarchy
1: in the testing center. (laughs) I can imagine so much rage over that question. What, What do you mean, how long? I don't know.
0: How do I figure out how long? But... That's because it's a creative question, because the most realistic problems to be solved are ones where you don't know everything, and you need to assume some things, and then see if it's right. And if you're wrong, you need to look back at your assumptions and see, maybe we need to alter a few of these to different assumptions and try again. Right. So, you need to assume things like, well, about on average, how long do people shop for? you know, two and a half hours, say, and then maybe we're going to assume that they come in evenly spaced intervals, and then you assume that they did not all come at the same time, then you could just do the math, and you say, well, maybe it'll be about two and a half minutes then before somebody comes back. But it's the fact that you need to make that step and be responsible for your own assumptions that it suddenly creates a creative problem.
1: Yeah, and the most interesting part of the problem, I think, is not like, how good were your assumptions? Because that's interesting, too, to redo the experiment. True. But the most interesting part is thinking, which assumptions do I need to make? Yes. Like, figuring out which assumptions are needed and only the ones that are needed, that is the real part that tests your creativity.
0: Yeah. So that kind of question, it would... The most difficult thing about this would be the grading Right. Which then puts pressure on other people. But as trying to actually have this question on a test, you would see what assumptions did they think of. If it were a physics question, they could just give you some sort of a generic problem, and you needed to figure out a solution. And you would really begin to see who understood the physics and the math by what assumptions the students would make. Right. If they were assuming the spring was massless, or that it oscillated as a simple harmonic oscillator, or that there was no friction, or that there has no interactions with any other molecules around. It was just one-on-one interaction. All these sort of things you could really be
1: able to tell. Like, this is someone who studied physics and knows, like, well, these are the things that would affect it, and I'm going to assume that these are the conditions of these interactions that might affect my system. Yes. And
0: that's when you could really, really tell who was understanding it instead of who just remembered the process of doing this. Right.
1: I wish. That's what I was about to say. (laughs) I wish so badly. I mean, that is so... That is the part that's interesting about doing physics. That's the part that's fun. And when you get a test question like that, that makes you do even a little bit of that, yeah, it's hard. You think, ah, I'm going to be really upset if I did this wrong, but part of the reason I think you're upset is because it's like an admission that, oh, Maybe I don't understand this as well as I would like to think I do. Yes. But those questions are so fun and satisfying when you do them and you get them right or mostly right. It's just, that's why, one of the big reasons that I have chosen to study physics, because of that satisfaction.
0: To be able to come across a question and you see it and it is so difficult to start with that you really don't have that much of a clue on what to do, and so you think about it and you really think about what's going on then you really begin to see inside you how much you really know and sometimes that's really satisfying because you come across a question and you recognize what should happen what you need to do to be able to solve the problem other times you feel
1: so lost and you just wish you never had that question but and then you do the only thing that you know how to do exactly (laughs) (laughs) then you do that again An experience I can think of that drives home his point or at least as an example yes is the way that I do homework a lot of the time when I'm pressed for time and I know that I have to get it done quickly my goal is like just figure out how to do the problem just figure that out and I'm always tempted not to take the time to understand the physics behind it usually we're pretty good at doing that anyway you know it's helpful to have you there working on it with me because one of us will be curious and want to know Yes. But I find myself on tests often if a test question gets at the deeper thing, I often have to go back and think, oh, what did the textbook say about this? And I have to really dig to find this was the assumption or this was the principle or this was like the general statement that allows us to do the math that I'm about to do. Yep. But I find myself not paying as much attention to those things in classes where the testing is more process-based is less, like, it's more regurgitation testing than creative testing.
0: I agree. And one of the things that I'm most grateful for, having gone to that colloquium with Dr. Mazur, was I now look for things to assume. It's very similar to when we were studying the Putnam questions. In case anyone is unfamiliar with the Putnam, the Putnam is a math test held every year in December, and it's out of 120 points.
1: The most common score is 0.
0: If you score 10, which would be getting one question right, that's pretty good. If you score 40 or 50, grad schools will look at you very seriously.
1: (laughs) Yes. They'll look at you. That's a big thing to say. You usually have to go to them. (laughs) Yes. Anyway,
0: Colton and I took a one-credit class based on preparing for the Putnam
1: because it was convenient and helped our schedule out anyway. So, obviously, we didn't take it really seriously, because we didn't have the time to. But,
0: one of the things I noticed most about the Putnam questions were things you had to assume. There are certain things in mathematics that are necessary to assume. And this is one of the reasons why I love the fundamentals mathematics class, Math 290, so much, and other math classes, is because they're so different from physics classes because they give you a problem, but they teach you that there are things that you must assume even if it is something so simple as assuming that n is an element of the natural numbers. Right. (laughs) But you need to assume that in order for the thing to work, and it's so important to do it. And after having listened to Dr. Mazur speak, I've been more diligent in implementing assumptions in my physics and thinking very deeply about what should be happening and what could be happening and what assumptions I need to
1: make in order to fit this basic model that I understand. I have to say that, gratefully, this has also influenced me likewise, because I do all my homework with Garrett. All of the homework? Yep, all of it. (laughs) Especially last semester, I noticed we would be clear about, are we assuming this, are we assuming that, and we would write our assumptions on our homework. And I often did all my tests, I don't know, because, you know, I didn't look at your tests all the time. (laughs) If I did, it was after the test. It was after the test. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We'll be sure we don't cheat. We are academically honest. (laughs) Yes. But, it just feels so much better, having been clear about your assumptions and thinking about the assumptions to prove to yourself, yes, I understand the physics and the assumptions that are necessary to make this work. It
0: feels so thorough, and you're just so satisfied. Yes. Do you have anything else to say about that? We could complain about a lot of things such as multiple-choice tests or other such similar things. But there's really no need, because anyone who has come to university knows about these things, and everyone is equally as frustrated, student and professor alike. So I don't really have much more to say on that topic. Really what it is, is assessment should be gauging the understanding of the student. Most of the time, it really doesn't. It's a competitive way to categorize students in order to see quickly how they may fall
1: or fare in higher education, like such as grad school. It's really the quick and dirty way, and it's not very... I almost want to say it's not very honest, because it's not an honest assessment of how well a student might do. Yeah.
0: Because there are some times where I really don't understand what's going on, but it's multiple choice. And if you have taken many multiple choice tests you see that there are patterns and there are certain things that just make it a lot easier to answer the question correctly because of how things fall or fit or how it's worded especially how it's worded i agree so there are times where the system of assessment has benefited me but i also feel that it mostly doesn't benefit most people yeah it does
1: more harm than good I just think we should say a little bit more about how it does kill learning. I see this as I think about questions that other students ask, or just sometimes the way they approach homework, or the questions that we talk about with other students as we're doing our homework. We're really not focusing so much on the physics a lot of the time. I mean, yes we are, but I often get the feeling that we're cutting the corner to answer the question. We just skip the assumptions. Yes. And we skip the deep understanding. I can even remember myself saying to people, I didn't really understand, but the result is that you end up with this equation, and then you do this, because I understood the math. Yes. So we've been conditioned to do this for that reason, for the reason that tests test that kind of thing. You bring up a good point, though, that people ask questions based on
0: how they're assessed. Yeah. The worst question is, will this be on the test? Yep. That is by far the worst question ever. Ever because it guilty. Has, <laughs> yeah, I've, I have asked it a couple times as well because my grade
1: depends on how I perform on a test. And for how us, I, our ability to continue going to school depends on our grade, which depends on our ability to for- perform on a test. <laughs> so there are times where I do ask if something will be on the test. Every time I do, though, I feel bad. (laughs) I'm glad you feel bad. I don't always feel bad because I have a rage against the man kind of attitude. That it's their fault anyway for making me have to pay for school this way. So if they're going to do that, then I have to do what's necessary to pay for school. So I'm going to do everything I need to to do well on the test so I can continue to pay for school with good grades. But it's true. You're right. I should adopt the higher ideal. Mm -hmm. Always. I have it most of the time, but there are times. This is what kind of frustrates me,
0: and why I often poke fun at engineers. Oh, this is why I feel frustrated with some engineers. Is because in engineering, I have noticed that they try and teach you so much, because there's so much to know. But the way they lead you to understand how to do it, I feel... Misses the math. And it's in the math that you need the assumptions. And they skip the assumptions and they go to the process. And I feel like they lose out on so much satisfaction because they focus too much on results instead of understanding.
1: Yeah. I feel like also this can lead them to... What's the word I'm looking for? Be surprised when the process that they're using doesn't work because the assumptions are not satisfied. I feel like some textbooks encourage it. They say, this is where we start from, and they barely mention the assumptions, if at all, and then they skip a bunch of steps, and they say, the result is that this is what we need to do.
0: Sometimes I understand that that jump is really difficult to make step by step. Yeah, the math sometimes gets very hairy and very ugly. And so in a textbook, when they're trying to help me understand a concept, it is appreciated sometimes
1: that they skip some of the really gross math. But there are times for it, and there are times that it hinders. Yes. And I think it hinders, maybe not more often than it helps, but it hinders often enough that it shouldn't be done so often in textbook writing. Yes. So, assessment, congratulations. You are silently killing our learning.
0: Let's go on to something fascinating. We're going to talk about languages. If you've listened to Hello Internet, there is an episode called Sorry Language Teachers. (laughs) We are going to talk about similar things. If you want to listen to that podcast episode,
1: you can take a break right now and listen to it. It's probably like two hours long. Spoilers. Spoilers. Only part of it is about language. A good chunk, though. It's very true. We
0: aren't picking up from what they're talking
1: about, but what CGP
0: Grey and Brady Heron spoke of is it's engaging. Yeah. Like, it really makes you think about it and the issues that they address. Issues, the things that they address.
1: So we're going to talk about languages. So I am interested to know first your perspective on the importance of a second language. Very important. Okay. I believe it's important. Let me give you the
0: first and foremost reason why I believe it is important. In my study in psychology, we talked about the brain a lot because it's psychology and that's what happens. Right. But something super fascinating happens is some people who have had brain damage lose the ability to speak. They can no longer talk. Or form words. It's very interesting. And they can't relearn? No, they cannot relearn the language. Wow. Because the language center of their brain is it's just toast. Toast. Just damaged. But if these people know a second language, they can still speak fluently in their second language. No way! That is fascinating. Because the way your brain stores a primary language, like your first language, is in a different spot than where it stores its secondary or tertiary or more languages. So... Yeah, I believe it's really important to know a second language. Firstly, maybe, maybe not firstly, but firstly. For some reason, if you got brain damage, you could still speak. (laughs) But also because it opens your world to such different understanding of language and its use on language.
1: Yes, thank you. People need to know, maybe not a second language. A second language is a very good way to do this. But some kind of other way of communication. Computer languages I think could help. Which we'll probably talk about more. Right. But I feel, and perhaps I'm biased, but I feel really strongly that people they need to get out of the ethnocentrism that is thinking that their language is the language, the only language, the original language, of not thinking outside the box in this respect. Not being able to get out of the English blinders. I
0: really agree on this.
1: As I've noticed with people
0: the understanding that one person has of another person is enhanced significantly if they know a second language. How have you noticed this? I'm interested. Most of the time I've noticed that people who only speak one language generally are not as understanding or considerate of someone else, regardless of that other person's language or number of languages that they know. But most especially if that person is a different ethnicity or from a different culture or different background of any type. That if one person knows a second language, usually they're kinder. Really? Yes. That
1: is so interesting. It's not
0: always the case. There are many kind people who only speak one language. But as a general rule, I've noticed that someone who understands another culture because of language is usually going to be another culture. They usually are kinder.
1: So really, what you're getting at then, if I understand you, is this ability to realize that the perspective that you have on the world is influenced by the environment that you're in and the language you speak and the culture of the language you speak. Because the language you speak is so influenced by the culture. Yes. We can talk about some examples of this momentarily. But the ability to realize this and to realize... A really important thing, that your way of thinking is not the only valid way of thinking. And yes. your perspective may be missing a lot of information, or may just be missing the ability to step outside of your perspective and see, maybe objectively, this isn't kind, or this could be hurtful, or this is morally wrong, or this thing doesn't matter as much as I think it does. Is this what you're getting at? That this ability is beneficial to a person A person's character. Yes. I agree. It is something
0: that I have noticed. It's not true with all people. I have met some people who lived in another country in which there was a different language than their primary language spoken and a completely different culture. And these people still are not quite the same as others who went to, say, the same country and speak the same language. It does depend on the person, but it is more likely, much more likely that they understand
1: I had not thought of this I had thought of this completely from an academic point of view, but I completely agree, this is so Uh, I've noticed it most
0: frequently because as someone from Canada I lived in England which is different language and different culture, really it is and then coming to the United States and meeting people who have never left America, sometimes they say things. <laughs> Sometimes they say things and you, you realize that they just don't get not <laughs> They don't often place themselves in the listener's shoes. They don't often see from someone else's perspective. You don't need to go to another country. You don't need to speak another language to be able to develop the ability to see from someone else's point of view. But it does help. Because immersing yourself in another culture is shocking and lonely and very hard and You usually end up coming out of yourself and seeing you from other people's perspective. And that's what changes you. Yes. Learning the language when you're there changes you even more
1: because you begin to see why they saw you the way they did. I completely agree. Like, I could not agree more. And this thing, being able to think from another person's perspective, completely regardless of languages is such an important, not only social skill, but I feel like it's an important duty, for lack of a better word, of people. Of, like, the human... The human race. Yeah. If you're going to help someone else, you are a lot more helpful if you can kind of at least see things from their perspective. A lot more helpful.
0: And this leads into so many different places that you discuss something with someone and you realize that neither of you are right you're just different
1: yes and i want to clarify here that there i believe and know that there is moral objective truth like this exists yeah Sorry, i was talking about um like more political or economic exactly and the importance of being able to realize that I feel like if you don't recognize that there is moral objective truth and then there are things that don't necessarily matter, that there's no one right, or that there's a mix of circumstances and such, I feel like this ability is important to be able to respect others' views and to understand them and help them, or to receive help, to just to exist in the best way with other human beings. But that other part, understanding that your way isn't the only way to see things, is just as important as understanding that there are certain things that are black and white. Yes. I'm so glad I asked you first. (laughs) So, how important is a second language to you? I think a lot of my background is going to come out here. Let it. So, uh, where do I start? Aside from what Garrett has said, which I think could be the most important reason to know a second language or to be able... Just develop that ability any way that you can to see from another person's perspective. It is so hopeful in everything. I was just fascinated by other languages academically. I don't know why. Human interests. It is fascinating. And so I can remember from before I even knew any, well, I did know some. In second grade, I was fortunate enough to have like Spanish immersion for a little bit. And I really enjoyed that. And I had a bit of a knack for it. But I can remember that ever since then, and maybe even before then, I would ask my mom who had taken some high school Spanish and was still fairly recently out of high school when I was young, just, you know, five, six years out of high school. I would ask her how to say things in Spanish, and I had already planned, like, oh, I want to take Spanish as soon as there is a Spanish class offered in my school. I want to take one of those. And so I studied Spanish in school for five years in a row, which is probably abnormal. I took the most advanced Spanish class that was offered at my school twice because I'd taken it the first year and passed it and did fine and thought, well, I want to keep learning and no other class is going to help me out more than that one. So we'll just do that again. It was also an advanced placement class, which means there's a test that can give you college credit. And I had an opportunity to improve my score if I took the class again. So I thought, well, why not? I could get more credit as well. And this was the beginnings of my life now. Now, my job I have two jobs, but my job that has been my job for a longer time, ever since 2013 when I returned from my mission, is teaching missionaries, training them, about being missionaries in Spanish. So we teach them about being missionaries and Spanish, all in Spanish. So that's my job. Also, it's the language that probably my most important relationship things get discussed in because my wife is from Ecuador. (laughs) That is the biggest reason that I'm grateful to know a second language and to know it so well, is because I never would have met my wife or dated my wife or married my wife without knowing Spanish as I do. Yeah. You can cut a lot of that out, but that's how that goes. (laughs) Basically,
0: a second language is important to you because it has created most of the best
1: opportunities for you in your life. Yes, any of the ones that are not directly related to physics and school like that, were created by Spanish, by knowing Spanish and studying Spanish. Also for all the reasons that you said, but I don't feel the need to repeat them because you said them so well. So I grew up in
0: northern Canada, in the west side of Canada. So not very many people spoke French, especially when I was growing up, because Canada is a bilingual country. America doesn't have an official language as a country, but Canada officially speaks English and French. Growing up, I took very little French, and
1: I don't remember all that much. Je ne sais pas. I don't know. <laughs> it's enough, right? Je ne sais pas français. I don't know French. That's as much French as you need to know if you're going to know the bare minimum
0: of French. <laughs> and I only speak one language. I only speak English. But growing up in a country that is bilingual, everything in the shops, all of the food and all of the products, all have French and English on them because it's law. And it's just different to see sometimes, here where everything is only in English on products.
1: Sometimes it's in English or Spanish or something like that. Sometimes we have English and French, too. I see it every once in a while.
0: But it's just different that it's not always in both languages. Yeah. And seeing it in both languages, you begin to see, even though I don't speak French, seeing that on one side it says chicken, on the other side it says poulet, You realize that there are different words, and you begin to see why, maybe
1: why... Sometimes you call chicken poultry. (laughs) I have a question. Have you ever noticed that something is written in English and written in French and, like, the number of words don't line up? Yes. And the structure? Yes, very much so. I'm glad you've noticed this. It's pretty obvious (laughs) if you pay attention to it. Right. This leans into something that I wanted to talk about, which we've touched on a bit already. English, or your native language, is not the original only language. I've said this already, but this bothers me so much because this assumption or this attitude impedes learning another language a lot. And it impedes understanding I think sometimes English or whatever language that you speak natively. For example, the structure of English is not the only way to communicate an idea. No. You don't have to have all the words. In other languages they didn't just look at English and say, okay, we're going to have a word for this word in English and a word for that word. The words overlap, the meanings of them overlap, and there are phrases to say a similar or the same thing, but that have different words, a different structure. It's not word to word.
0: This same thing I've noticed as well is that there are no direct words. For example, the one you most frequently wish there was an English word for is this spicy thing that Spanish people talk about, this hot and spicy. There's not quite the same word when you're Mention when your nose is running. Oh yes,
1: (laughs) yes I know the word. And I. So what's the word? The word is well, it's a family of words. Enchilarse. It's a verb. Uh, The other common thing that you say is enchilado, which is what you say. Like you say, I am enchilado, which means I'm experiencing the effects of eating something spicy enough and for a long time that my skin temperature is rising and. My mouth is feeling hot everywhere, and my nose is running. But I'm not necessarily in pain. It can be kind of enjoyable, and you can still have a desire to like to keep eating the thing. I know because I've experienced this. <laughs> it's almost nostalgic, but it's a characteristic reaction to spicy things. The thing that I wanted to bring up is that this word does not exist in English. As
0: far as I know, yeah. Or it's just very difficult, but the concept exists. Yeah. And so there's this thing that I learned very recently called a lexical gap, or a lacuma. Oh! It's called a lexical gap, and there is a word for it. So the lexical gap doesn't have the same lexical gap, which would have been pretty cool. But <laughs> there, it's called lacuma. Yeah. Okay. In Spanish it is? lacu Lacuna. Sorry. So it says, in linguistics, an accidental gap, also known as a gap, lexical gap, lacuna, or a hole in the pattern is a word or other form that does not exist in some language, but would be permitted by the grammatical rules of the language. Another very obvious one is that there is a word, which is very well known, which is virgin, but there is no word for someone who's not a virgin. Ah, yeah. So there's a lexical gap there. There's just no word that exists.
1: Right. You have to use a
0: phrase. Also, in Romanian, there's no word for shallow. It's called not deep. I think
1: in Spanish, this
0: word also doesn't exist. Not no shallow. There are lexical gaps, or there are lacunas. Maybe that's a wrong
1: plural of lacuna. Anyway, languages. They're actually extremely fascinating. I'm so excited that I know this word now because I can use it to describe so many things, though very few people will probably know what I mean. So, you probably seen in the show notes the note I have. I get this question all the time from the missionaries. One of the ways that Mexicans will say cool is padre, the word for father. They'll say, que padre? And I always get the question, why do they say that? And I agree that it's a little weird to use a word that is so common for something else. You say so commonly as something that's completely unrelated. That is a little bit confusing. But yeah, because cool is very strange. <laughs> I always ask cool. them, why do we say cool? Do we mean that it's cold? No. Does that have anything to do with temperature? No. Wait, yeah, it does. No, think about it. It doesn't. You just think it should because that's the word we use in English. So that's my comment about think outside the box and realize that if you think something is weird in another language, the same thing may not be weird in yours, but you have plenty of things that just make absolutely no sense.
0: Yeah, I'm also reading a book right now called Metaphors We Live By. Oh, yeah. It's so fascinating. For example... We imagine that our minds are like boxes and that ideas are objects that we put in the box because I will give you an idea and you
1: will steal an idea, take an idea.
0: Yeah. There are just these weird metaphors in English that are so prevalent. And another one is very much so the metaphor, time is money. Yeah. For example, I can spend time with you. I'm spending time with you. But any time that I spend with you, you cannot give me back the same time, but you can only give me back the same amount of time. And so the metaphor breaks down and you lose understanding about what the concept is when you use a metaphor. And it goes so deep. This book is quite amazing. I don't know who the author is, but it's Metaphors We Live By. It's very fascinating. I might have to read this
1: because I would probably enjoy it a lot. So That's good.
0: You have a note here talking about
1: lazy English. What do you mean? Yeah, English is lazy. This is why I think English is lazy. Will and would. I don't know about a lot of other languages, but Latin-based languages don't have words for will and would. The reason we have a word for will is so we can say the verb as it would be in its infinitive form. For example, eat or walk or talk. Like you can say to talk, right? This is an infinitive form of a verb. So, to say this in the future, you just say, I will talk, or I will eat. Ah. I will say. It's the same, right? He will say, she will say, we will say. It's the same for all of them. It's lazy. It's just a word that means we're going to go in the future, but I'm not going to change the actual action I'm doing to sound like it's in the future or that it's any different. I'm just going to use this helping word in the front because I'm lazy. And I also don't want to change it For example, in the present tense, I eat, you eat, he eats, it's different. Yes. But it's I will eat, you will eat, he will eat. It's all the same. Why? Because English is lazy. (laughs) I feel, honestly, I feel that some of these things are this way because English is lazy, and I wonder if this kind of lazy thing exists in other languages, especially German, because English has a lot of German roots. A lot of the things that I think are silly about English come from the Germanic structure of it. I think,
0: though, it may not be German, but Germanic. Right. Slightly different. Right. So it does not come from the German language. It comes from the Germanic roots that happened to also make the German language.
1: But I wonder if those Germanic roots still survive in German. Uh, I, I guess see. is what I'm asking. Also, things that are weird, I don't know if they're necessarily lazy, but I think they're weird. These things we have as question markers... When you ask a question in English, for example, so I can say, I am reading. Are you reading? Or do you read? The, the do or the are are necessary for that question to be grammatically correct in English, right? Yes. This is silly. Do is a verb. Why do we use it to indicate that this is a question? <laughs> so is are. And how do you decide whether it's do or are? Yes, it seems obvious to you in English, but try and really, like, say what the rule is. It's difficult. Try to explain this to someone who doesn't speak English. It is hard. I can't think of a good reason why this word has to exist at the beginning of a question. In Spanish, to say the question, you say it exactly the same as the statement, structurally, and your tone says everything. For example, you read? This will fly in English a lot of the times. Sometimes we think it sounds like a caveman, but it's just because we have this stupid do at the front. Yes, I see. I hate that because it is so hard going both ways. It is hard to explain to my wife Why and when you need to say it and how to know when it's do and are. And it is so hard to get the missionaries to stop asking when they're asking a question. How do you say do you? How do you say are you? You don't need to. You just say you read. (laughs) You speak Spanish. You read in the past tense. This also is a pet peeve of mine. Big paper cut. Did. Just like do, if you're asking a question about something that happened in the past, you say did. Did but the verb that you did is exactly the same. Again, yeah. Like did you eat? Did you eat? Not, it's I ate, right? <laughs> Why isn't it you ate? Or at least did you ate? I know that sounds horrible, but it's just because that's the way you've been conditioned. This indicates that it's in the past, but we're lazy. We don't want to have to change the verb all the time. What a bother. <laughs> so we just use one word to indicate that anything is in the past if it's a question. <laughs> it's horrible. It's horrible. So those... Or a couple of my pet peeves about English. Also, why do we say fast asleep?
0: It's a good question. So, the metaphor of sleeping and waking, I mean, you fell asleep and you wake up. So, it's sort of a directional thing that's going on.
1: But fast asleep, that doesn't quite go with direction. It is so weird, isn't it? I tried to explain to my wife again because she asked me how to say, there's a word for this in Spanish, so there's probably several. Yeah, I can think of several ways to say it. Like, someone is sleeping such that it is really hard to wake them up and not very much would disturb them, and they're not going to notice because they're really tired. Yes. So I say, oh, in English we, we say fast asleep. And she was like, so you fall asleep fast? You fell asleep fast because you're really tired? Yes, that probably also happened if you're fast asleep, <laughs> but that's not what it means. But why do we say fast asleep? You're not doing anything fast when you're sleeping. You're just laying there. Maybe you're dreaming fast. <laughs> but it's just a silly, silly thing. I don't know why it's fast asleep. I mean, you can be in deep sleep. This makes more sense to me, but probably because of the directional metaphor that I'm used to in English again. Yeah. You don't say this in Spanish either. You say...
0: Because <sighs> you're not going to say you're deep asleep. You say in Spanish... The, the asleep is a strange word, I think. Is right? why you put the fast asleep.
1: Yeah. In Spanish, you say well-asleep, which, if you can break your English brain for a little bit, kind of makes sense because well is used generally as an intensifier for a verb in Spanish. Yeah. Like, he draws well. You can also say he is really well-educated.
0: just had an idea. So, something interesting about fast is there is no adverb form of fast.
1: Yeah, you can't say fastly.
0: Fastly. So. You can say quickly. So, you're saying you're fast asleep, which would be similar... To saying you're sleeping deeply. Interesting. So maybe since there's no, I mean, it doesn't make sense to say there's that you're sleeping. You're sleeping quickly. That doesn't make sense because quickly and fast can sort of go together. Right. But
1: I don't wonder. That is interesting. Perhaps I'll investigate that if I have some time. Anyway, so it just this just makes so much more sense in Spanish to me, and there's no there's no directional metaphor. Spanish has this great thing called a reflexive verb, which we have in English, but they have a really clear way of indicating. This is an action that I do, and I also receive the result. As opposed to, I give you a pen, I do the giving, you do the receiving. When I bathe, for example, I'm doing the bathing, and I'm receiving the bathing. When I fall asleep, same thing. And there's a verb? There's a verb. So there's the verb sleep. Yes. Like, they're sleeping. And this is just a normal verb. But the reflexive form of this verb indicates that you are falling asleep. Like, it's to fall asleep. Which we say in English as fall asleep, but it just means... My body did this weird thing to me where I went from conscious to unconscious. (laughs) Yes. Not (laughs) unconscious, but you know what I mean. I went from awake to asleep. And my body did it to me. No one else did it. Interesting. So go on and tell me a couple other things that irk you, that irk me about English.
0: Like Plex. I'm interested to know why Plex bothers you. I feel like it's another lazy thing. This is not, so this is kind of like, uh, what do you call it? But you tack it on the end of a word. A suffix? A suffix, that's correct. Right. Yeah. But
1: it's not really a suffix. We do this is thing it? that's a trendy thing. I think plex can be a suffix, but we do this trendy thing where we combine words. We put suffixes on words where they weren't before, or we put a prefix on and we combine them and it's like trendy and cool. It annoys me to death. Other languages do this as well. I know German is
0: quite frequent to do this where you have something and you have two things describing it and you put it together to form one thing that describes it.
1: Right, like windshield wiper. This thing is a wiper and it wipes the windshield. It's a windshield wiper.
0: Yes. The German, the most known one that I know for German is Jell-O because we use in North America the brand name Jell-O. Uh In German, they concatenate shaky pudding. So it's shaky pudding, (laughs) which is kind of exciting. Right. I believe this phenomenon is also happening, hence the trendy, really, is the hashtag. Because people will concatenate things to create an idea. Yeah. And so,
1: trending really fits very well. I hate most things about Twitter, so this, I think for the same reason. I just have an instinct to hate social media trendy things. I don't know why. But I hate this because I feel like it's lazy and I feel like it's just trying to be gimmicky and you lose meaning or you just create ugly words or... You're just too lazy to say it's a cinema complex. It's a sports complex. That's the what the word is. It's complex. But we don't want to say it complex, so we just chop it off and put plex on the end. Sportsplex. Ugh. It's horrible. It's terrible. It's part of the laziness in English. Yes, it is. So, I don't like cineplex, sportsplex... Also because complex in the first place is vague, so this kind of helps because it specifies what kind of plex it is, but then no one knows what complex means still. We just need to clarify what complex means and then use it correctly. Can we do that? I don't know why I would prefer this method, but... It's probably too late. I'm sure it's too late. This has been years. I had a friend who knew I hated this, so he would just... He would do it even worse, even when it's not like a... Like a group of a certain kind of structure, like, like a cords field or cinemas, or like several screens, Cineplex, CinemaPlex, you know. Yep. And he would just say things such as. Would you say things like tableplex? Or dormplex? No. He would say studyplex. <laughs> like a verb with <laughs> plex. So bad. <laughs> That's horrible. Yes. But Run he plex. thought it was hilarious. What? Runplex. Yes, like that. But you can have a running complex. Yes. But this means another thing. This has nothing to do with structures and organization. This means you have some kind of problem that you have to run. Oh, Because you have a complex. About running. Yes. Do you see why I don't like complex? Yes, also complex is is complex. Yes, that's a different word, though. Putting a different emphasis makes it a different word. Yes. Like, please get this right from now on, people permit... Okay, I realize you're not going to get this right. That's really presumptuous. I'm sorry. But it bothers me. Permit is a verb. It means to allow someone to do something. Permit is usually a document of some kind that means you have permission from the agency to do the thing. It's just the wrong emphasis on the syllable, yes.
0: (laughs) So... Continue on, tell me a couple, you have a couple other words that you hate. Fest goes along with the same thing.
1: Yes, astro fest uh, something or other-fest, I, same reason. Music-fest. Uh Music-festival. Like. Ugh. Phase just has way too many meanings. We're not clear about what it means. We've broadened it too much. Even in physics, it has, like, two or three. Yes. And often when someone's writing a paper, they're like, oh, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call this mathematical trick, this little thing that I've represented with math, will be the phase of the thing. It's not the same as a phase for a wave or a phase in anything else, but I'm going to call it a phase.
0: Yes, yeah, so and in thermodynamics, dynamics, you have phase transitions, where you right. go from a liquid phase to a gas phase or and something. And then in waves,
1: you have phase, which means this is the same frequency wave, but this one started this time and that one started at that time. So... Phase, same problem. Refreshment, we say this all the time in Mormon culture, even when the things that we're eating are not very refreshing. Especially, usually they're heavy. Yeah. Like, refreshment to me is like cold drink, maybe some fruit. Something light. Something light. A salad. A really good salad with some nice dressing. I appreciate sweets, but they're not refreshing. They're heavy. Sometimes they bring in these double chocolate fudge brownie things. <laughs> <laughs> you take a bite and it's just... So much chocolate. And I hate it the most because usually when someone mentions refreshments, I'm a little bit hungry and I'm a little bit tired, and I'm usually hot if I'm in one of those meetings. Like, I'm a bit warm. So they say refreshment, and I think, ah, yes, something light where it won't make me hotter. And it might even cool me down if it's... I also don't think soda's very refreshing, but at least it's cold. And then it's like a donut. And my body's just like, no, you're not even going to make it to the car before food coma hits if you eat the donut right now. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my problem with refreshment. Select. Select, I'm interested. Why select? Also because it has too many meetings and it's trying to be too trendy and like, this is a better version of, this is the rich people's version of the word choose or pick. How to select something. Pick is really like lowbrow. Choose is average guy. You know, average Joe says choose. But academic papers and professors say select. Or you can have like select food, you know select cut. Even cat food is select, but you didn't really go out and select the best. I don't believe that at all. False advertising. I have a problem with people using words when they shouldn't be used to give the impression that's better that something is better than it is or something other than it is to be gimmicky or to get you to do what they want. Yeah. It's similar to why clickbait titles are annoying. I, uh,
0: that's a different story. I hate clickbait titles. I agree. Okay. So, something else that I wanted to talk about was off of the uh, this idea of Plex and Fest is how different cultures and different languages, when looking at another culture or language, they seem to catch onto certain. Sounds. I can testify that this is true. So in English, English looking at Spanish, for example, one of my favorites to to mock with is the word pedestrian. I mean, if you want to translate into Spanish, how would you do it? It would be pedestriano,
1: right? <laughs> you Just tack an O on the end of it because Spanish has so many O's at the end. Are you interested to know what the actual word is? It's you told me before. Peaton. Yeah, yes.
0: But having, I had a friend. Sorry. I have a friend who... uh, English. I have a friend who speaks Spanish as well, and he said that the Spanish speakers mock the English shun. Maybe it was you, but I also have another friend who told me as well. Nation, something
1: shun, yeah.
0: Organization. And so... (laughs) Yes.
1: You want to hear a funny joke? Yes. About this? too. actually. This was a serious thing that happened to one of my friends, who's Venezuelan, but is American Venezuelan, speaks perfect English and Spanish. Really jealous of that. But he was speaking to someone that only spoke Spanish, and he was kind of joking, kind of seriously, saying, I can speak English. It's not hard. The same kind of, you just put the O on the end. Yes. Like, so he points to the shoe and he says, Zapato, the Spanish word for shoe. And then he says, (laughs) zapate That's the English word, right? (laughs) And... My wife always says this joke because she saw it and she uses it to, you know, make fun of herself. It says nivel de inglés, which means level of English. Ah. (laughs) Excelentation. Which is extra hilarious because the word in Spanish for excellent is excelente, which is actually really close to the English word. It wouldn't be that hard to get it right. (laughs) But it says (laughs) excelentation. It's just great. It's a good little meme. Also, the Koreans
0: focus on the sh the sh sound in english that english does okay and they make fun of english speakers by like sh, 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 sh. like making fun of that sound
1: <laughs> another hilarious thing is to hear a spanish speaker make fun of asian languages oh my goodness it's hilarious i can't describe to you what it's like <laughs> i would just butcher it but ask we'll ask my wife to do it sometime it is just a riot <laughs> Anyway, let's
0: continue to talk about these words. Intuition is a word that we both feel is misused in interesting ways. It needs more clarification, perhaps bifurcation. Yes, and I was speaking about this with someone else, and perhaps instinct should be if you differ between instinct and intuition. For example, you would talk about a mother's instinct, but also a mother's intuition, and perhaps they are different things, no?
1: I don't know. That's part of the reason that this needs to be clarified. I don't think a lot of people... Would use intuition? I think a lot of people would say both and mean the same thing. Yes. Even though in other cases they might mean intuition, that is not instinct. So I feel that instinct is inherited
0: and... Like, intuitive. no
1: environmental factors affect this, just biology. the way you were born, biology. Yes. And then intuition is learned. Yes. At least it should be that way, because in physics you talk a lot about solving a problem, and you just say, well, sometimes it helps just to have like physical intuition. Yes, it does, and you can learn some physical intuition. But people are under the impression because you say intuition that you can't learn it, that you just have to have this already. Exactly,
0: because I'm pretty sure that if you ask anyone... No one would believe you if you told them that you were born with the ability to solve differential equations.
1: (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's not something that you inherited. (laughs) But there is this thing about it that we call intuition that a lot of people talk about. It must be at least some kind of real or perceived real thing in our heads that you can have for, you know, this equation looks like this. I think this would work best. And you turn out to be right. Yes. That would be an intuition. Something that you developed
0: over time through experience. To recognize patterns. Right. And then instinct is not used for problem solving. Instinct is pattern recognition. Humans are instinctually able to recognize patterns. That's why, if you think about it, why we've been able to figure some things out. (laughs) Is that how we did it? Wow. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Anyway, let's go on to talk about... Oh, yeah. Now, Since we're talking about the evolution of language, sort of, and talking about trendiness and things like that. Lyrics and music is something that changes language incredibly. And one of the things that bothers me the most about lyrics is they will not say half of a word so they can rhyme it in the next line. (laughs) It's so miserable. You're like, look, I know what you mean, artist. I know what the word is because I knew, like, I caught where it would be placed and I understood the context of it. But you only said half of the word so you could rhyme it with the next line. Maybe
1: you're clever... But if you were completely correct, I think you would be more clever. Yes. To me, it's more impressive to rhyme with perfect grammar than to rhyme with bad grammar. (laughs) Or half words. Or pure
0: slang. Yeah. But that's not pop. (laughs) (laughs) So singing with perfect grammar would be hard and difficult. Sometimes someone who has mastered the English language... They can appropriately abuse the English language to make a point. Yeah. And it's very effective.
1: But this is the difference between mastery and... I just wasn't creative enough to think of a way to make this work the way I wanted, so I just invented a way. Exactly. Like
0: we did. Analytical, which by the way, we called ourselves... This podcast is analytical. It's an adjective. You need a noun to go with an adjective. But we just took the the adjective, and that is our title. We totally abused the language. The podcast is analytical.
1: It describes the podcast.
0: Yes, but you would have to say the analytical podcast. Point taken. So we are not masters of the English language, but we abused it. And since there's no certificate that you need to get to abuse the language, the language changes. So long as we don't abuse the syntax, because syntax is important. Yeah. If you change the syntax, you change the language.
1: If you change the syntax, the computer won't get it right.
0: Also true. So things like Siri and other talk-to-text things. Right. Syntax is extremely important because if it's not part of the grammar, how could it be part of the language? Well, you might have words that are part of a language, but if you don't put them in the grammar, you're not going to get anything that makes sense. The
1: program can't do it.
0: Yeah. It would be too much to try and program something to understand so many different parts of grammar. Because last semester, I took a computer science class and I had to program a lexical analyzer to analyze a language to see if certain words were in the language to be able to describe certain types of words such as strings or identification words or keywords, things like that. I had to write this program to analyze it lexically. And then the next step, was to make sure that a file I received was part of the language and then was part of the grammar. It was required to be in a specific order with specific syntax. Okay. And that's kind of tricky to do.
1: I assume you had a
0: simplified version of this. It was quite simple. Yes, it I was would... not robust <laughs> <laughs> by any any sense of the imagination. I believe there are only 5 or so keywords. <laughs> that were, like, words that were specific to mean something special. Okay. Everything else was an ID, or if it was in quotes, it was a string. It was really basic, and then it found punctuation. Okay. It was super basic.
1: This is still impressive, though. I'm still impressed. It was a lot of work. Yeah. I remember you working on this.
0: Yeah, I spent a lot of time on it. The other thing we want to bring up, though, leading out to from computers, is computer languages. In Hello Internet's discussion on languages... There is this prevailing thing about whether or not computer languages would be more important to teach students in high school than a foreign language. Right. Because the way the world goes, there's so many employers that want computer scientists compared to the number of employers, employers that want translators. Right. And when you look at a computer science language, such as C++ or C Sharp or C or Java or Python or Julia or anything That is a computer science language, including MATLAB or even Mathematica, which, you know, isn't really a language. But it has its own syntax. And Mathematica's syntax is really, really picky. Yes. It is extremely picky. C++ also has a very picky syntax. If you do not put that semicolon there, it will freak out at you. It will freak out. (laughs) MATLAB, you want to put semicolons in because you
1: don't want to see all of your work being spit onto the command line. Probably in Mathematica as well you want that. In Python if you put a semicolon I think it I don't know if it freaks out or if it does nothing but you don't need them at all. But this can be confusing because in other the other languages you do. <laughs> so something
0: about computer languages that I would be extremely interested to know is if someone who knows a computer language or more than one computer language, which is pretty likely, loses their ability to speak their primary language if they can still code. This would be very interesting. To very know. interesting to know where does the brain store a computer language? Is it as important to the brain as a second language or not?
1: This is very a very interesting question. Along those lines, something I thought of earlier. People that speak another language may know what I'm talking about. You like to think that you're getting to the point that the second language is almost as well known by your brain as your first language and almost as accessible And so you like to think that, for example, the Spanish word for all these things I can name in English and Spanish in the room are just synonyms in my brain for the thing. And they have this little, like, footnote that this one's a Spanish word. But it's just a synonym for this concept. I would like to think this, but I would be interested to know that after doing it for a long time, I think, maybe this would be possible with a computer language too, I'm not sure, if your brain would start to store certain things of the second language in the same place as it stores your primary language. Oh. I'm interested if that move would somehow happen, and if you completely lose the ability to speak the second language if this did happen, or if your brain would revert back to the understanding of the second language that it had from the other piece. Before it started storing concepts. In the primary language area, yeah. Wow. So I'm also interested in this, because, and I don't know if this is me just over-exaggerating my experience because I want it to be this way. But sometimes things happen where it seems like I know about something more and better in Spanish than I do in English. I know how to describe it better. I lose the English word or I can't think of the English phrase. And the Spanish one just comes readily to my mind. Yes. I'm not sure if this is that much of a big deal, though. I know a lot of other language speakers, second language speakers, experience this. So I would be very interested to know both of those things, especially... Where the computer language goes in the brain. Yeah. Because that would tell you a lot about how much of this is communication to our brains. Like, how much of it is we've just encoded information in strings of characters. Yeah. Or in ways to say things.
0: I think one of the most difficult things about a computer science language is not understanding the language, but is actually using the language. Yeah. Which is probably the same for everything. The that syntax is very difficult. It's not so hard to understand words, but to use the word correctly. What I mean to say is, computer science is always an analogy. It is always an analogy. Because the brain c- cannot hold such abstract concepts without relating it to something.
1: And it also can't say, well, to do this abstract concept, just do this to these ones and zeros. Your brain's not very good at that at all.
0: <laughs> yeah. To think about how... For a database or trying to build a database of some kind, you're basically learning how to build boxes. And how these boxes interact with each other and how the things in the boxes interact with the other things in the boxes and with the boxes. But it's all an analogy because to build this structure out of the syntax and the code, it's not the same. Like that connection between the syntax and the structure are so different. Because the same code written in a
1: slightly different way changes everything entirely. Yes, instead of making a box, perhaps you're making a building. <laughs> yes. Or it just changes the analogy completely. Yep. It changes the structure of what you're doing.
0: And so one of the difficult things about coding in computer science is taking these ideas that you discuss about holding names in a database and phone numbers, say, to make an address an address book, and then putting it into code but when you go to do it it suddenly is strange and difficult and weird and yes. you give it convenient name you give things convenient names so that you have some hope of understanding what's going on <laughs> right you call some object people and you say that people have addresses and phone numbers and then you can store these addresses and phone numbers with these people but it's so abstract because you didn't need to call it people you could have called it a or A1, and it holds A2 and A3.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then you just, the analogy's completely gone, almost. It still holds, though. Yes. This is a very interesting point. Discussing on what Brady
0: and C.G.P. Gray talk about, on the importance of a computer science language compared to a second language in high school, Gray's argument was mostly about the fact that computers are getting better and better at actually translating languages.
1: I'm still skeptical about their translation ability, though, because of the nuances. Word, Word for word, sometimes... A lot of the time, doesn't work. doesn't
0: work. Phrases works even less, but Gray argued that you can get by. But it's different because a computer cannot hold concept for concept and rework the concepts very effectively. Where you give it the concept of time and using time, and then you try to translate that to another language, sometimes it just doesn't come out effectively. And... A computer is not going to understand that in this context, you ought to use these words like this, and it it sort of fails.
1: And I don't really know... Unless you have a giant list of if statements that just covers all the cases, but this would be ridiculous. Yes. Totally impractical.
0: Very often, when people use Google Translate, they take phrases and things out of context so that they can translate them. Right and then you lose all of that context on where is this coming from, what concept is actually being communicated here, what should I actually replace this with in this other language.
1: And then you would have no hope of doing that with the computer correctly. Yes. Without the context. So I think I agree partially with Gray's point that perhaps a second language, like forcing someone to study a second language in school as a requirement, may not be as beneficial as studying... A computer programming language and I may agree with him that perhaps that should be a requirement learn some programming at least a little bit I don't know but one thing the computer programming language cannot give you is the push to step outside your perspective and your culture yeah which I think is a huge like we said before a huge benefit of a second language and I think There should be some way that we encourage people who are growing up and learning to have that kind of experience. Just for, like, the social benefit and benefit to your character, as we discussed earlier. Also, something that may affect where the computer language goes and how, just how it's treated as opposed to a second language. You don't really converse in computer languages. They're not, like, spoken out loud and listened to. No. This is a whole dimension that they wouldn't have. But they have dimensions that foreign languages don't have. I also acknowledge that. You can talk about queries and statements in computer science. But it's not this not quite the same as conversation. Yeah. For example, you can't just speak C++ to me. You can nope. say things and I would understand and maybe there would be a joke. But we can't have a deep conversation in C++. No. And another thing that I'm very interested
0: in is computer science languages that are not English-based. Yeah, because in English you have if and else and while and do. And these, some of these words just are very English.
1: And they're staples of the computer languages. Yeah,
0: these keywords that are commands to run the code in a specific way are very English. And so I'm interested to know. I have never looked it up. Maybe I'm not that interested, but it tickles me to know <laughs> if there are computer science languages that are in other languages.
1: I've thought about this more than once, and I'm interested... And I'm interested how the structure of them possibly would be drastically affected by just the different structure of the language. Yeah, how the
0: syntax of the f- the language that is not English affects the syntax of the computer science language.
1: And even maybe what they've written it to be able to do. Or if because computer I think the first programming languages was probably invented in English. Yeah. If they all just like take the English platform and just go with it so that those things And these don't magic exist. words if and
0: else are just
1: memorized to them like this means that this will do that yeah this is interesting perhaps we should look it up one more word pet peeve i think we've hit this already but vague words words that we have not clarified the definition of i feel like a great example is accessibility center i know what that is i know that it's for people with disabilities and they need a way to access i guess you could say the same information and advantages for like a test or they need to wait to they need equalizers for circumstances that make it so their disability doesn't hamper their performance in a certain way in the university yes and they call it accessibility because I guess they're trying to say we're removing the bars to access that are created by the way we've decided to administer this assessment and your disability together something like this if you think about it, it's not a very good word it may be hard to find a good word for that but accessibility is so vague like what are we accessing? Who's accessing it? What's, is the thing accessible or not accessible? Accessibility means you can get to it easily. So what does this place help me do? Get to what? <laughs> yeah. It's just so vague. It bothers me. Yeah, it's very interesting. We mentioned quickly that
0: our name is Analytical. It's a name that we finally decided on. You know, three episodes in, this episode two. Actually, part of our reason why we started counting at zero is because of computer science languages. The good, effective computer science languages begin their indices at zero. And it makes sense
1: for the reasons that they do it make a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. And it's so much more convenient to be able to code that way. It takes a little bit of effort to catch on to the uh, the fact that the first element in your array or vector has an index of zero. Yeah. It takes a little bit to catch on, which is why
1: computer science often has an off-by-one error But it makes so much sense, for example, if you're putting things in it, when you have zero things in the vector, and you probably have some kind of counter for how many things you have, when you need to put something in, you need to put it in at the zeroth place. The first one, but it's the zeroth place. Your counter is probably at zero when you start it, because you create the first thing and then you put it in. And then you increment your counter to the next one. Yeah. Anyway, it makes sense. So we're called analytical... And we're now on YouTube. (laughs) In the most rudimentary sense ever. (laughs) If you search on YouTube, analytical, you probably won't find us. But
0: if you search the first episode title, The Bovine Mystery, you will find us. And you can leave comments there and feedback. I mean, comments on YouTube are horrible. They are not organized in any beautiful way. They are just a jumbled mess of Usually people arguing, but (laughs) since this is so small, if you leave a comment, we will see it. So
1: subscribe. Just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, subscribe, actually, if you want to, because there's no one subscribed right now. You could be the first, and you can comment and say, first subscriber. Probably don't have a chance to do that again.